Find a seat. So we're continuing in our study of the Psalms. And this week we are in Psalm 53. If you would, stand as we read God's Word. Page 10 if you're following along. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I want to tell you a story to start off this morning about something that happened with our family probably about six years ago. And it goes like this. My daughter Lucy was probably two and a half, almost three. Uh, Eli was born, but he was, he was an infant. And I was spending a lot of time on campus. I used to be in campus ministry at Lehigh University, which is northeast corner. It's north of Philadelphia. And Bonnie was home with two little ones, you know, changing two sets of diapers. And we lived in a neighborhood that was very squished together. If you've ever been in the mid-Atlantic or New England, you know that, you know, this type of architecture where you're just going to share a wall with someone and that's it. So when you have so many people concentrated like that, you you end up getting a lot of people door to door trying to sell you the religion. Okay. The most two famous types you guys know of are the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Raise your hand if you've been visited by one of these two. Yes, they are doing such a good job. Okay. That's so good. Well, a Jehovah's Witness, an older man, knocks on the door. And remember, I'm not home. And Bonnie opens it, and Lucy toddles up next to him. And the man was tall, and Lucy goes, you're tall. He goes, yeah. And she goes, you're holding a Bible. He goes, that's right. You know what this is. And see, something, I don't know if you know about Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, They like to get to the punch. They're not roundabout, right? So he goes, you know what the Bible is. Do you know what's in it? And Lucy goes, yeah, it's about God. And he goes, well, where is God? And Lucy, because we've been doing the children's catechism with her, Lucy goes, God is everywhere. 
And the man goes, no, he's not. (laughs) To which Lucy says, yes, he is. (laughs) And he goes, no, he's not. God is in heaven. To which Lucy, no, he is not. God is everywhere. The man turned around and walked off. (laughs) That's the end of the story. The point is, um, if God is kind of up there, we picture him as up there, not really concerned about what's going on down here, it's very easy for you and me to live like practical atheists, right? This psalm is God's antidote to practical atheism, that he is here. He is among us. So let's take a look at it. We're going to go really verse by verse. Looking at verse 1, the first thing we see is God dismissed, right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity, for there is none who does good. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This isn't the only place in Scripture that we see this. We see it in actually Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is almost exactly Psalm 53, except for just a couple minor changes. But what I I want you to see here this morning, I don't want you to come into it and say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I believe in God, and I believe that Jesus is my Savior. Look at, just look at the wording. The fool says, in his heart, not in his head. The fool says, in his heart, there is no God. The psalm isn't talking about this, like an honest intellectual assertion, like when you and I use the word atheist, right? What it is, it's a confident affirmation that this person is unconcerned with God or what God requires of him. So it's not intellectual atheism. This is what we're calling this morning practical atheism. Living as if there is no God who will hold them accountable for their actions. So living as if there is no God who will hold them accountable for their actions. And the Bible calls these people fools. A fool in the Bible is someone who is doing something and does not anticipate the long-range repercussions of it. That's what a fool does. So the Bible calls this guy fool. And there's something else that's important for us to see here. When the Bible talks about atheism, and it does, it doesn't talk about it as an intellectual problem. It actually talks about it as a moral problem. Take a look on page five of your bulletins. This passage from Romans that Chris Shaw read. There's a couple of things I want to point out on this. In verse 18, verses 16 and 17 are happy, and then verse 18 starts out, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousnesses of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, and then look down at verse 20. It says, his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, what are they? His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
through what's been made, so they are without excuse. So the picture that this has, and if we could put the first slide up, the picture that this has is something like this. Please forgive me, I drew this. If there are any of you who want to draw in the future, come get me. What this is trying to illustrate is the guy says there is no God, but in his heart, which is oversized, he needs to see a cardiologist, but in his heart, he is stomping and suppressing the truth. The picture is there's not a man, woman, boy, or girl who can look at the great expanse of creation and not see his eternal power and divine nature, that there must be someone who made this. Because I can't even tie a good knot sometimes. And he made like tree pathways. He made your neural pathways. He made volcanoes that are exploding. And black holes and neutron stars is pretty obvious. And so when it talks about, when the Bible talks about atheism, it says that those who proclaim to be atheists, what they're doing is they know these things, and they're taking this, and they're suppressing the truth in their heart that they know deep down at the gut level. And so when the Bible talks about atheism, it never talks about it, never, as an intellectual problem. It's always a moral problem. And you could probably line that up maybe with your story of coming to Christ, that you didn't need more information, but that God just finally broke you. Finally, you finally went, yes, I am just in sin. I've been suppressing the truth. It was a moral aspect. It wasn't an intellectual aspect. You know, I've, I've probably only met two people who ever came to Jesus, let's say intellectually. It was, a, it was a final bending of the knee toward that. So what this leads to, if we can take it to the next slide, we have a knowledge of the truth, and then we have a choice. And that's what this psalm is presenting. You either suppress the truth and live as a practical atheist, or you live in the truth that you know. So those are the two choices that we have here. And if it's practical atheism that we're talking about, this psalm is talking to you and me because we all live, to some extent, as practical atheists. Let me give some examples, okay? So here's an example. Um, This denomination, the PCA, we have two different types of elders. Teaching elders, pastors, guys who have been to seminary, and ruling elders. So the teaching elders here at Trinity, me and Blake, the ruling elders, like Will Parker was up here earlier, Paul, Nathan, Mike Phelps. So we've got our ruling elders and our teaching elders. So this was again in Pennsylvania about a year and a half ago, and there was two teaching elders and a ruling elder, and our goal was to take this massive upright freezer and drop it through a hole in the floor into the basement of this other pastor. And fortunately, the guy who was the ruling elder, he's a weightlifter, so we're really hoping that that would be helpful. But the thing is about 350 pounds. 
and it's a straight drop into a basement about 12 feet down. So how are we going to do this? So, you know, I'm trying to think, is there any way, you know, can we do it with straps? No, the hole is too tight. Well, we're going to put someone underneath and like holding it like this. No, that's, that's a cartoon. That's not real life, right? And so uh, we finally figured out a way to, to do it. And me and the other pastor that was there said, okay, let's do it. And the guy, the guy who was the ruling elder, he goes, guys, I think we need to pray about this. And I thought, oh, shame. It's like, yes, that is actually a great idea because this thing could crush one of us. Or my, if I make a slip, I could let someone else get crushed. And so we prayed about it. And it had a happy ending because no one got crushed. But you see, that's a very difficult task. It was something that wasn't kind of in the normal course of the day. It's not, should I eat Fruit Loops or Cheerios? We're doing this big thing here, and it took someone to stop us and say, hey, we ought to pray about this. Up until that point, <laughs> I was living as a practical atheist. Does that make sense? That we just go on autopilot and do not acknowledge God's, God's presence or His provision. Now, think in your life. When do we, you, most exhibit practical atheism? Driving. Some of you are very aggressive drivers. Some of you are very slow drivers. And, I mean, I love you, but there's some bad drivers in the room. There has to be, just by sheer percentage. (laughs) It's often easy to get on the road or... God forbid, in the Walmart parking lot, and not get a little on edge. And then our first thought is maybe, is maybe a four-letter word instead of a prayer for the person who cut us off, right? It's very easy to live as a practical atheist. Here's another example, just parenting. Like, how many times do you pray before you yell? right? That, I'll give you, I could probably say maybe once I've done that, because you're in the moment, and kids, when you were littler, and even now, sometimes you, you annoy your parents, and that's okay. And parents, we respond just out of anger or frustration, or I just want peace and quiet, and that's okay, because Jesus has grace for us. How do we get rid of the practical atheism in that, though? Pause. Is what I'm about to say good for my child? Jesus, help me do the right thing. Be at work in me and at them. I mean, we're talking about very simple things, right? But this is, I live like a practical atheist in parenting most of the time. What else? Uh, I mean, you know, we could do shopping, worship. Like, it's really easy to come in here and just go through the motions. I don't think that we do that as a church, but it is easy just to kind of go through the motions. And because it's religious, it feels like we're living it right, but we're actually engaging as practical atheists. Do y'all see? Do y'all see this? That's what this psalm is talking about. People who are living as practical atheists is people who dismiss God. 
And the Bible calls those people fools. They live as a practical atheist. If we take a look down to verses 2 and 3, we see God assessing mankind in this. It says, God looks down from children, or excuse me, (laughs) God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I want to ask this question, work with me on it. First, is God's assessment of mankind accurate? Is it accurate? If you're not very familiar with the Bible, I think it's very easy to say no. Because what you see, if you just look around, like, okay, Mother Teresa with the lepers, like you see good people doing good things all the time, right? Neighbors mowing other neighbors' lawns when they're out, you know, without even being asked, like a doctor who is kind to you and didn't charge you for something. Like those are all good things, right? I mean, there's all sorts of good things that we see, but those are all in the horizontal. And they're kind of judged by our standards, right? That's not what verses 2 and 3 are about. Verses 2 and 3 are talking about God's assessment. What is the vertical assessment? And God's standards are much higher than ours, I mean, you could read them in the Old Testament, namely the Ten Commandments, but using his standards, well, yeah, none of us are good, not even one. By nature, apart from the work of Jesus, apart from the Spirit within us, no one really does good. So, it seems that his assessment is accurate, right? But why is that the case? Why is it that there are none good? Many of you may know we're about to go next, but If you would, put up the slide. This comes from the the first major publication uh, to teach school children language in the American colonies was called the New England Primer. And in the New England Primer, they had a way to memorize the alphabet and they often used biblical cases. So the letter A, we might say it's apple, or orang, no, orangutan, that's not. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, it's a hard thing to get up here and can't think of something that starts with A. Let's just say apple. We might use apple, right? It's ubiquitous. Well, there, the New England Primer says, A, oh, there it is. In Adam's fall, we send all. This is what three-year-olds were being taught. It does rhyme. Very good. In Adam's fall, we send all. They thought that it was important to teach their three-year-olds this. Why? The reason that you and I, when God looks down, he sees no one good, no, not one, is because in Adam, we all sinned. Adam was our representative in the garden. If he would have succeeded and obeyed, we would have had life forever without sin. But he did not. He disobeyed. And therefore, you and I inherit sin and are imputed sin to us from him. And so you and I are born sinners. 
We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The baby in the womb is a sinner in need of God's grace. And so, when God looks down, this is accurate. And this is his saying that these, these people are fools. It's just they're running rampant with their sinfulness. They're living as practical atheists. What else would you expect in that case, right? So, God has assessed mankind and found that we've all fallen away. And this explains why mankind's miscalculation in verses 4 and 5 makes sense. Uh, and if you could put up the next slide, I want to read from the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation is not a great translation to use if you're actually trying to study for the most part, but if you're reading the Psalms of the Proverbs, it does a wonderful job. You know, in Hebrew, there's a particular pithiness to the Psalms and Proverbs, and the New Living Translation really captures that. So this is what it says, well, those who do evil never learn. They eat up my people like like bread, and wouldn't think of praying to God. Terror will grip them, terror like they have never known before. God will scatter their bones, scatter the bones of their enemies. You will put them to shame, for God has rejected them. It's a miscalculation to believe that our lives here will not come to account. It's a miscalculation to believe that our lives here will not come to account. You know, there will be a moment in history where God will judge the world. That is in every monotheistic religion. You know, and C.S. Lewis said it in this way. He says, in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. Brothers and sisters, we will stand before the face of God as individuals and have our lives be brought to account. In a life of practical atheism, this psalm has showed is that in the end, you will be rejected by God. Practical atheism leads to rejection of God, rejection by God. So what's the antidote to it? How do we not get to that final day and God rejects us? We'll take a look at the last verse of the psalm, verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This was written long before Jesus was born, and the antidote comes in Jesus, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. You see, up until this, this point, you had a bunch of people, the Jews, who the ultimate hope hadn't come yet. They believed that God was faithful. They believed that He was going to deliver, but they never got to see it with their eyes, and they died in faith. And 2,000 some odd years ago, Jesus was born. He did not live as a practical atheist. Not once, not ever. He stole away to pray. He interacted with people in the way that he should. He interacted with his father the way that he should. Whatever the opposite of a practical atheist is, he was that. And then he died in our place. He died for people who are prone to practical atheism and conquered sin and death. So, 
salvation for Israel has come, he is still for us even when we act like practical atheists. In the same way, parents, are you for your children when they act dumb? Yes, right? And are you for them when they don't act like you should, like they should? Of course you are, because they're in the family. Brothers and sisters, you are in the family, and the Father's for you. So we see that the first part of verse 6, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. The antidote to practical atheism is Jesus, who defeated it and is curing it in you through his spirit. But check this out, too. How does it help us, let's say, internally? How do, how do I live, going forward from here, less as a practical atheist? I think a lot of that has to do with perspective. Look at the end of verse 6. The salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Has God restored all of your fortunes? No. I mean, the Bible says that we are blessed with all the blessings in the heavenlies currently right now, but it also says that we shall inherit the earth. It says that we shall judge the angels. It says that we shall see him face to face. That has not happened with you. It has not happened with me, right? And so you and I honestly need to be like Jonathan Edwards, who says one of his resolutions, to think about heaven daily for an hour. The way in which we conceive and take our minds there is the way in which that time where there will be no practical atheism is brought back into the present. We were controlled by passions, not of this age, but of the age to come. We can see the Lord on the throne when we walk by the river and eat from the river, when we see the streets of gold, when we are unable to sin, when the sun has died away and there's no need for it because Jesus is the light, when there are no more seasons, when there is no more night, when you're no longer tired, when death and disease hasn't rampaged your family and you. The way that we move out of practical atheism is by seeing the day in which Jesus makes all the ugly here come untrue. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, that engages my heart. That makes me want to look forward to that and to make today very different because of it. The antidote to practical atheism is seeing what Jesus has done, what he's doing in you, and how he points our eyes to something more glorious than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that Jesus has saved us and is saving us and will save us in the end. We look forward to when the, restore, when the fortunes are restored fully, when the meek inherit the earth, when we see our God face to face, 
Father, let that fuel us to become less and less of practical atheists. We look to you through the power of your Spirit to bring that about. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.